0: Hey guys, before we dive into this episode, I want to mention show sponsor Baby Trend. Now, I know this is a company that you're probably already aware of. It's one that I used heavily when my two boys were little, especially for their car seats and their strollers, and they're just out now with a new stroller called the Race Tech Jogger. Now, you can only find this at Target, so purchase it there, but it has everything that you'll need to make your run as comfortable and smooth as possible. Not that running with a child is ever easy, but when you have the right gear, it makes it more possible. So they have all-terrain tires for smooth push and one of my favorite features of this stroller is that the handlebars are adjustable so no matter your height you're going to get it at the right level for you so you're not straining your back you're already pushing you're working out you don't need to be straining your back because you're trying to go out and do a good thing for you and your baby and it's compatible with most baby trend car seats so you have options as well so head on over to target.com and check out the baby trend race tech jogger today You are listening to the Motherhood and Stress Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so excited that you're here because the information that my guest, Dr. Andrew Steele, is sharing in this episode is potentially life-changing, not only for you, but for your entire family, for everyone that you know. And it's information that I feel like most people are not aware of. We're talking about Aging. Now, I think most of us think of aging as a completely natural process. You know, we're all supposed to age and kind of get decrepit as we get older. But my guest today is saying that, that no, that's not the case. That does, it doesn't have to be that way. And my guest, Dr. Andrew Steele, is a scientist, a writer, and a campaigner based in London. He's also the author of Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. After a PhD in physics from the University of Oxford, he decided that aging was the single most important scientific challenge of our time and he switched fields to computational biology. He worked at the Francis Crick Institute using machine learning to decode our DNA and predict heart attacks using patients' NHS medical records. He's now a full-time science writer and presenter. He's written for The Guardian, Telegraph, and Wall Street Journal, and he's a regular expert on impossible engineering. He's been featured on shows like Discovery and the BBC, and he has now a YouTube channel where he gives live talks ranging from lectures in schools to science stand-up at the Hammersmith Apollo. So in this episode, you're going to learn what aging actually is, and we're also discussing how scientists are studying every aspect of the human body from DNA to mitochondria to stem cells, even our immune system, uh, going all the way to longevity genes and what those are. This is definitely a science-heavy interview, but I love those, and I know you do too. If you're tuning in, I know you can handle it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, of course, please share it on social media in your Instagram stories or share it with a friend. And of course, if you haven't already, please leave us a review so that more people out there in the world can know that this is a viable and valuable podcast. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Well, hello, Dr. Andrew Steele. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah. So just to kind of kick us off, and I think it'll be a good entry into the talk and and all the discussion about the book, but talk to us about the chart, the graph that changed your career.
1: I think this is a really fascinating graph. And I guess I would say that because it's a graph that, as you say, caused me to change from being a physicist into being a biologist. Um, And that graph is the graph of how likely you are to die, depending on how long ago you were born. And the thing that's really shocking about that graph for humans is that your risk of death doubles about every eight years or so. So let's uh, have a think about what that means. I'm in my 30s at the moment, which means my odds of death are somewhere around 1 in a 1,000 per year. And let's just think about what that would mean if that were to continue for the rest of my life. Um, Because of those odds of death, 1 in a 1,000 every year, I'd live into my 1,030s on average so it's pretty clear that isn't what actually happens because of that doubling every 7 or 8 years then you know it doesn't actually start off very spectacular the doubling you know feels like quite slow progress at first but eventually you can get very big very quickly so by the time you're 65 your odds of death are roughly 1% of not making a 66th birthday and if you're lucky enough to make it into your 90s then your odds of death every year are somewhere in the region of 1 in 6 so wow. that's sort of life and death at the roll of a dice and as a human you can look at that and just think well that's terrifying i've got this exponential wall of sort of mortality and disease and suffering coming for me but as a scientist you look at that and you think that's fascinating maybe there's some kind of underlying process that's driving you know every one of us to get ill at such a synchronized time in our lives and perhaps by understanding that process which is of course the aging process we can do something about that and allow us to all live healthier for longer
0: wow i mean it it was a big shift i mean really to switch complete professions what was it about that graph and understanding that that you were like okay i'm actually going to dedicate my life to this topic this topic of gerontology
1: so I'm a very numerically driven person. I did a degree and a PhD in physics. So I sort of see see the world around me as a collection of numbers and statistics. Not entirely. I do have some emotions, but you know, a lot of what I, the way I see the world is very statistical. And the sort of inevitable result of that graph, if you look around the world, global life expectancy. I'll actually uh, just give the listeners a, a chance to pause and guess. What do you think global life expectancy is all around the world, all of the countries averaged together? And the reason that I ask people to guess it is because it's a surprisingly high number. I think most of us imagine a huge, you know, developing world, very poor, you know, very, very poor healthcare systems and so on. And actually, the global life expectancy in 2019, which is the most recent uh, year we have data for, was 72.6 years, averaged across all the countries. And that means that most people in most countries are living long enough to get a significant way up that graph I was just talking about. And if you run through the numbers, over two-thirds of deaths, so more than 100,000 people every single day, die essentially because of ageing. They die of cancer, they die of heart disease, they die of Alzheimer's. And although you can put yourself at risk of those things, you know, by smoking, by having a bad diet, the single biggest risk factor is simply how long ago you were born. And what that means is that by targeting ageing, by coming up with drugs, by coming up with other treatments that we can slow down that process with, we can potentially hit all of those diseases at once, we can decrease the frailty, we can decrease all the other things that we don't necessarily call diseases, you know, the incontinence, the imp- the loss of independence and we can just make billions of people's lives better potentially and so I just saw this enormous potential and you know had to go and do something about it basically
0: yeah but you must run up against the question or the statement you know we're supposed to get old and die I know you've heard this a million times what would you say to those people who just accept aging accept dementia cancer all of the heart disease is as normal in, in part of life
1: I think that question's really interesting if you think about it from a historical perspective because the fact is that we've been adding about three months of life expectancy per year every single year all around the globe so if we were to sort of rewind this conversation maybe 150 or 200 years and perhaps I'd brought out some radical book about how we could treat tuberculosis or how we could start to you know think about conquering infectious disease somebody could ask these same questions they could say you know isn't it natural that half of kids die before they reach their 20s isn't it a good thing that you know there's this constant background risk of you getting tuberculosis or you're getting some other you know uh, infectious disease and just dying and that really motivates people to you know get on with their lives and live their fullest lives because they know it could end at any moment and i think if we look back at that you know with our modern eyes we can see that no you know vaccinations are fantastic um, you know hygiene has revolutionized lives all around the world we can now look forward to basically double the life expectancy of someone who was born at the start of the 1800s and you know that's not come entirely without challenges but i think it's been hugely hugely beneficial for humans for the human condition and you know for all of our lives for our, our health for our our happiness. And I think that, you know, if we were to look back in a few hundred years from now when medicine's significantly better, then, you know, if we haven't, if we've done something about aging, I think we'll look back at, you know, th- with sadness, at people who had to withstand all these different things at this time in history. So I think it's just an extension of the goals of modern medicine. I think that nobody would object to cancer research or heart disease research or looking into Alzheimer's disease to try and get rid of the terrible toll of that. And it really fascinates me that people seem to put aging research, trying to treat the root cause of all these problems, into such a separate ethical sociological category even though you know it's only real crime is to potentially be more effective than those things
0: right and i think that's you know what most people think about us you think of aging as you know you're just getting old maybe you have a cane and then you just die peacefully in your sleep you don't have to deal with all of these raucous diseases that come your way just from your cells breaking down and incurring damage so i love that you're saying that and i want to kind of set the record straight for everyone listening like early on in the interview what actually is aging you know it's not just getting older and getting white hair there's from a scientific standpoint there's actually real clear definitions can you talk about what aging is scientifically
1: i think that's a great question it's actually one the scientific community is still grappling with we've got a few really solid ideas but it does feel a little bit like the sands are shifting underneath us all the time because it is a complicated process it's a it's a constellation of different biological changes rather than any one single ticking clock inside of all of our cells And in the book, I break it down into 10 what are called hallmarks of the ageing process. And this is based uh, quite heavily on a 2013 scientific paper of the same name, one of the highest cited papers in all of uh, biogerontology, which basically breaks it down into nine different causes. And actually, I ended up jiggling around a bit, adding an extra one and ended up coming out with 10. But there's a a lot of overlap there. And these are the cellular, the molecular underlying changes that cause all of the problems of ageing. They cause everything from frailty to wrinkles, to grey hair, to predisposition to cancer and heart disease and so on. And that's what's really fascinating about this because there are there are thousands of different things that can go wrong with your body as you age there are hundreds of kinds of cancer you know there are loads and loads of different ways you can lose your sight or become incontinent but when you boil it down there's actually you know a comparatively small number we think of root causes and to give some examples there are things like damage to our dna the instruction manual inside every one of our cells and as you go through life um you know you can smoke you can eat bad food you can have environmental toxins things like ultraviolet radiation can can damage the dna directly but actually we think that a lot of the damage comes from just the everyday uh, you know Know, sort of mishmash of life going on inside those cells. Because as you're respiring, which is just the scientific word for, you know, turning food and oxygen into energy, basically, which obviously is absolutely essential. If we didn't do that in ourselves, we wouldn't be alive. As that process goes on, those chemicals are by definition quite reactive. That's why is they can work as the fuel for life. And what that means is occasionally, if a, if one a, um, of those chemicals gets fumbled, it can go away and it can damage the DNA. It can you know, it can react with your DNA and damage it. Or it can react with a protein in the cell and damage it. So that's another cause of ageing. And then, you know, you can look at things like the cells in our bodies ageing. A really great example that I think we'll probably talk about a bit more is senescent cells. These are cells that have divided too many times, or they're cells actually that have got too much damage to their DNA instruction manual, and your body goes, well, oh, this cell, it's looking a bit dodgy, maybe it's at risk of becoming cancerous. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll put it in the deep freeze, I'll tell it not to divide anymore. And that uh, they can enter this sort of non-dividing senescent state. And unfortunately, these senescent cells, they don't just sit there, sort of benign elders of the cellular community. They actually accelerate the ageing process as they sit there not dividing as well. And then all of this can result in consequences that affect whole systems of your body and i think a really key one of these is the immune system and that's something we've all had a you know terrible reminder of in the last sort of 12 to 18 months with the coronavirus we've seen that that pandemic at least before the vaccination started was absolutely disproportionately affecting older people and that's because their immune systems are weaker that means they're less able to fight off threats like covid uh, if you'd caught covid and you're in your 80s rather than someone catching it in their 20s or 30s you're literally hundreds of times more likely to die if you weren't vaccinated so that's you know a fantastic difference that's bigger even than the increase in the risk of death itself, and that just shows you, you know, our immune system's going wrong, which doesn't just affect our risk of infectious disease; it affects a load of other things too. And so, the whole process of aging is sort of a, as I say, a constellation, a mixture of these various different causes at different levels, which predisposes us to all the problems of old age.
0: Yeah, out of all the hallmarks of aging, you know, and you added on the extra one for t- for 10. Are there any that truly dominate outcomes of aging? Would you say the senescent cells factor? It's huge. Would you say DNA damage or mitochondria? Uh, what do you think really stands out? Or is it just the ones that have been studied the most?
1: I think the honest answer is we don't know, because the other, the other thing is a lot of these are very tightly related. So, for example, senescent cells, as as I sort of just alluded to, are very uh, closely related to DNA damage. Mm-hmm. And it might be that one of the main impacts of DNA damage is actually to drive the creation of these senescent cells. And so they're all part of the same kind of story. Um, there are obviously other impacts that DNA damage can have as well. It's, it's all, you know, potentially quite complicated if you really want to get into the nitty gritty. But the fact is they are all very interconnected. I think the reason that I'm very excited about senescent cells in particular is that they're the ones that I think we're, we're furthest along in terms of understanding. That's the hallmark where we, you know, it's quite easy to explain, so I'll do it in a second. And we've also got these treatments that we can show that can actually do something about it. So senescent cells, I've already um, mentioned, are these cells that accumulate in your body as you get older because they've divided too many times because the, the DNA has been damaged. And actually the weakening immune system is also connected to this. You can see it really is a, a tangled, tangled web yeah. because in our youth, the immune system clears up these senescent cells cells whereas as we get older our immune system gets less effective so not only are they being produced more often because our cells are divided more because we're older because we've got more dna damage because we're older they're also getting cleared up less effectively and that's how it is that they come to increase you know in number slowly over time and what they do when they when they come into existence, they start pumping out this collection of toxic molecules. And actually, they're not toxic in and of themselves. They're molecules that are basically a cry for help. They're telling the immune system, hey, over here, you know, I'm senescent. I, I need clearing up. And when you're young, that system works really well. The immune system gets called over, gobbles up the senescent cell, and there's this sort of, uh, basically, an equal number of being produced as are being removed, and so everything's fine and happy. But as you get older, as they start to hang around, those inflammatory molecules, and this is another word we're going to keep coming back to, driving this process of inflammation, which we know is behind a lot of the uh, problems of aging, that can accelerate the aging process. And so that, again, might be quite a depressing story, apart from the fact that we have drugs now that can remove these senescent cells, while leaving the rest of the cells in your body intact. And so we've done this experiment in mice so far. Uh, What you do is you give some 24-month-old mice, now mice obviously have a much shorter lifespan than us, so that's roughly equivalent to 70 years old in human years. You give those mice a senolytic drug, it removes a substantial number of their senescent cells. And those mice basically get biologically younger. So the first thing is they live quite a bit longer. They live a few months, which is maybe a few years in human terms. But you might think maybe they're living longer because we're curing on particular disease. And so, you know, they're they're still sort of frailing, frailing, they're still sort of hobbling along, very frail in ill health um, and, you know, extending their lives that way. But that really isn't what's happening. Firstly, we're delaying multiple different diseases. They get less cancer. They get fewer heart problems. They get fewer cataracts. Um... And then there's the sort of impacts on their wider health. They're less frail. They can run further and faster on the tiny mouse-sized treadmills they're using in these experiments. Um, that if you put them in a maze, these old mice that have had the drugs are more curious. They're more willing to explore their environment, which is sort of a hallmark of a younger mouse. Yeah. And, you know, they have better fur. They just look great, these animals. I'm not a mouse biologist, I <laughs> 've <laughs> done a computational one I've never dealt with mice in the lab and even to my you know wildly untrained eye these things these mice that have had the drug they just look great they've got better fur they've got better hair they've got better, better skin they just look look much much younger than the mice that haven't had the drug and so what this shows us is that these senescent cells they aren't just a cause of a particular disease they they might even be a cause of literally the whole aging process mm-hmm. they're behind the frailty they're behind the wrinkles they're behind the gray hair they're behind the diseases and so hopefully by targeting these cells in humans and actually the first human trials have already started for specific diseases where we know senescent cells are a problem we might be able to achieve the same thing for us as we did for the mice
0: wow this i mean the implications from this are really staggering i mean it's just it's unbelievable and i'm just thinking back to like that alzheimer's drug that was just approved by the fda this past week and there's a lot of controversy around that it seems like addressing senescent cells might even be better than than what they're trying to do over with alzheimer's and i know alzheimer's has a huge amount of funding heading towards it
1: yeah, it's a really fascinating thing, the sort of the the conflict and the symbiosis between, uh, you know, ageing research and research into the individual diseases of ageing. And this Alzheimer's drug is a fascinating case, actually, because the, the way that it works is it clears what's called the beta amyloid, which are the accumulations of this particular kind of misfolded protein that sort of all sticks together into these massive clumps in the brains of Alzheimer's sufferers. But there have been literally decades of sort of, there's this graveyard of failed Alzheimer's drugs trying to clear the amyloid. And what we found is that we're very good at getting rid of it, but it might be that that isn't the root cause of Alzheimer's because actually, you know, it's... um it seems that you can get rid of the amyloid incredibly effectively and yet not affect people's cognitive state. So as as you say, there's sort of this controversy that it seems to be clear, it seems to be sort of meeting the technical end point, as we'd say in science, i.e. it's doing doing the thing the drug's supposed to do. The amyloid is gone when you take the drug, but it doesn't seem to improve the patient's cognition. So it's a a really fascinating and difficult question. And I think that's right in the sense that... um, these this research into individual diseases, the example I love to use is the NIA in the US um, which stands for the National Institute of Ageing it's the government's funding body for funding ageing research. Um, now that's actually a really good thing that the US has this at all. Most countries around the world don't have a body specifically devoted to looking into ageing that's obviously a problem in itself. But uh, there's a running joke in biogerontology that it stands, NIA stands not for National Institute on Aging, but National Institute on Alzheimer's Disease. Mm-hmm. And that's because of its approximately $3 billion, billion a year budget, over $2 billion goes to the Division of Neuroscience, which is effectively studying dementia. Then if you drill down into the bit that's actually working on aging biology, it's about $350 million of those $3.5 billion. Wow. So about, about 10%. And if you think about that per American, that's you know just over a dollar per American per year looking into the single biggest cause of human suffering, as I characterise it in the book, which just strikes me as absolutely crazy now this isn't to say that we shouldn't be researching cancer we shouldn't be researching alzheimer's disease these are really important things to understand they're aspects of the aging process you know we, we need to all work together to solve this problem but we desperately desperately need more funding into these things that are upstream of things like alzheimer's disease and there's actually already you know as i said with the mice they get more curious when you put them in a maze having removed the senescent cells there's some evidence that the, the senescent cells the inflammation that they bring is one of the drivers of dementia so it could be that you know yeah. intervening sooner with different interventions might be more effective at dealing with alzheimer's than what we're doing at the moment, which is trying to fight the fires at the very last minute. And that's, you know, characteristic of much of modern medicine, actually.
0: Yeah. And to me, that was what was so fascinating about your new book, Ageless, which is why we're here, why we're having this conversation. It's that it is such a preventative measure. And that really hasn't been done in Western medicine. You know, it's like you go to the doctor when when you're already sick and when you're already ailing. So... I think like it really is like this cat paw system where it benefits so many other things that we're spending, you know, billions of dollars to treat and then people are suffering anyway, you know, so it's just it's really it's encouraging. But how soon do you think that something like this will actually be on the market to treat, you know, someone in their 40s or 50s, someone who wants to get ahead of all these things that are coming down the pike?
1: I think it's going to be, and I'm a classic scientist here. I hate giving timelines. I don't want to say, you know, in 35 years, life expectancy is going to be 127. You know, that's what what journalists are often pushing me to try and get an answer for. My sort of evasive, yet I think exciting answer is this is going to happen in time for most people alive today. What do I mean by that? I mean that these these senolytic drugs they're already in human trials. As I said, the first human trial started in 2018, and there's sort of a common pattern for a lot of these anti-aging therapies. You know, some of which are a bit further down the pipeline than senolytics are. They start with a specific disease where we know this, uh, these senescent cells, or whatever other hallmark it is, are a problem. And so, for the senolytics, that's things like uh, lung fibrosis, which is a disease of the lungs, obviously, which you know affects older people particularly, where you get lots of scarring of the lung tissue, and it obviously makes it harder to breathe, and so on. There aren't really any good therapies for that at the moment, so we might as well take a punt and see if these senolytic drugs can help. But if they're effective, you know, if they treat the fibrosis, but most importantly, if they're safe, because you don't want to be giving a drug that has serious side effects to you know people in their forties or fifties who are otherwise healthy, you know. But if it, if it passes these first trials, we're sort of gradually going to move down the rungs, you know. Maybe we'll start by giving it to people with really serious diseases of old age like lung fibrosis or you know age-related macular degeneration is another one the sort of age-related form of blindness and then if it works for them maybe we'll think well you know these senescent cells are clearly implicated to some extent in things like cardiovascular disease so we could start using them as a preventative measure for cardiovascular disease you know people who are at particular risk they've got high cholesterol or something like that that means they're at risk of having a heart attack or at risk of having a stroke and again if it proves safe if it proves effective then we can start rolling it out to people who are at lower and lower risk just to reduce their risk of you know age-related problems further and so I think given that there are you know 20 or 30 companies now working on trying to get these analytics from the lab into the clinic, then it's really not a very long timeline. You know, we're gonna have the first proper clinical trial results in the next few years. Wow. We could start to see them in hospitals, you know, a few years after that. And like I say, this is gonna be for treating specific diseases at first, but it's really not wild to suggest that in you know perhaps 10 years' time we're gonna be using these things preventatively. We've also got a few what might be even nearer term prospects, which is repurposing of existing drugs. So there's a, a fascinating diabetes drug called metformin, which we can talk about if you want. But then that's, that's something that's been prescribed in the UK since the 1950s. It's got a really great safety record. There's some evidence that it slows down ageing broadly. And there's a trial, uh, which actually should have already started in the US, uh, called TAME, targeting ageing with metformin. That's going to try and work out, you know, finally, you know, sift through this complicated evidence. And says, does it actually work, you know, in humans? And then that's something that it literally costs cents per tablet. We could start taking immediately. Then obviously there's the stuff that's a bit further down the line. But if you're healthy and if you're um, taking, you know, perhaps benefiting from a few of these early treatments, that potentially could add a few more years to your life expectancy. And every few more additional years you get is long enough for scientists to develop the sort of the more sci-fi sounding stuff that I talk about in the book, things like gene therapy, things like stem cell therapy. And although these sound sci-fi, now they're they're decades, not centuries away. And that means that if you've got decades of life left, particularly if you've got a few decades where you're assisted by these early anti Aging breakthroughs. I really think it's very hard to, you know, give a precise timeline of exactly how long you might expect to live.
0: This is this is so much of a higher level of it, really down to the molecular level that you're treating, treating these issues, you know, forget the fillers and Botox and all of that. But um, you know, I love that you brought up that the gene therapy. Talk to us a little bit about CRISPR and the things that are happening, because that's a whole nother animal. Like you said, it's a constellation. What actually is going on with that? Because that I think is really important to cover too, because that is just incredible.
1: It really is, and it's it's such an emerging field of medicine. I think people don't realise there are already, I think, dozens, maybe even hundreds, of gene therapies. There are certainly hundreds being trialled. I think there are a few, there are quite a few that have already been approved. And at the moment, the way that that works. So, so let's let's talk a moment about CRISPR. CRISPR is this incredible technology now, but originally discovered about ten years ago as part of a bacterial immune system. And what that means is that if a bacterium gets infected by a virus, because they get viruses too, then what it does is it's got these little. Um, sections of viral, uh, basically, R- DNA or RNA. It's got, it's got DNA inside its cell nucleus, and it uses it to detect the viral DNA. And it can, if it finds that segment, it knows it's in a virus, and it basically chops the DNA up. And so what that means is that that acts as a defense. It chops up the virus's DNA. The virus, you know, can't infect the cell anymore because its DNA is all in pieces, and that's what it was used for. And scientists realized that because we can do this highly specific chopping-up operation, we could give it a particular stretch of DNA that we wanted to cut, and then it could go into a cell and cut it for us, and that's what we found it can do. And the first iterations of CRISPR, what they do is they literally do go in and just snip the DNA. So there's a sense in which that isn't you know, hugely useful for a wide range of applications. The reason being, all it does is cut something. And actually, the most common result might even be that your body successfully fuses those two bits of DNA back together and nothing changes. The hope is that if it keeps cutting at that location, eventually there's going to be an error in the repair. And that error will lead to a broken, um, a broken gene, basically. That means you can turn genes off. And so that's really useful. If you've got a, a disorder that's been caused by a single defective gene, you can go into somebody's cells, you can remove the copies of that, the defective copies of that gene and leave just the working one. And that can often mean in the case of these simple single gene disorders that you can improve someone's quality of life with a fairly simple therapy. I think what's going to be really exciting is when we can go in and edit these things and we're already starting to see the first hints of that. So there's a modified version of CRISPR called base editing and bases are just the names of the letters in our DNA. So our DNA is made up of these four chemical letters, A, T, C and G. And what that can do is it can latch onto a particular section of DNA and it can go and swap one letter for another. Now one letter might not sound like very much, but actually it can be a really big deal in biology. So if we think about uh, APOE, which is a, a gene that can change people's risk of Alzheimer's, if you've got two copies of the APOE4 variant, which is the sort of the band, one, we think. And then that can massively increase your risk of Alzheimer's, massively increase your risk of heart disease. And we also know that you know people who make it to the age of 100, called centenarians, very few of them have this ApoE4 genotype, as it's called. Far more of them have ApoE3, which is the most common one, which most of us will have, you know, at least one copy or probably two copies inside us. Then there's a very rare one called ApoE2, which actually seems to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's and heart disease. And we're sort of still trying to work out exactly what its effect is. But what really fascinates me about these these different genetic variations is they differ by single DNA letters. And that means I've, I've not had my genome sequenced. So if I were to have it sequenced and find that I had an ApoE4 variant, or maybe two of them if I'm particularly unlucky... I'd be relatively sanguine about um, you know somebody giving me some of this base editing stuff in order to go in and you know snip out the or not snip out but like swap out the offending DNA letter and give me apoE three or maybe even apoE two in order to try and compensate a bit. And this isn't going to work for every single you know every single gene that we can think of. We're going to have to do more advanced things, replacing sections or perhaps even adding whole new genes that we don't have copies of already in the more advanced ideas. But the fact is that a lot of this stuff is at least working in the lab and certainly some of it's already being tried in the clinic. I think there's actually already a um, a gene therapy being trialed for something called PCSK9, which is another gene that affects cholesterol levels. Mm. And we we already know that particularly African-American people often don't have either of the copies of this gene working they have far less cholesterol in their blood and they have far lower risk of heart disease so again that's another one where you look at people who haven't got any of this work gene working they seem to basically get health benefits and no downsides and that's really strongly suggested to me that you know maybe i'd be willing to take a punt on this therapy just to you know emphasize i'm I'm the wrong sort of doctor i'm a phd in physics not a medical doctor so please don't (laughs) take any of this as medical advice but it really does feel like this stuff is you know incredibly incredibly close it's not the sort of thing that's going to be hundreds and hundreds of years away we're going to be doing the first simple gene edits uh, you know maybe even on healthy people with in, as I say, quite possibly the lifetimes of many people alive today.
0: God, that's incredible. And where is most of this research taking place? Is it in the UK? Is it in the United States? I mean, is there a central location that this is happening, the more exciting therapies and, and uh, trials?
1: There Really isn't it? And the, the sort of the, the strange contradiction about it, I've already sort of spoken about the fact that it's the, the funding for this stuff is very, very low, and the US is by no means an exception. They're, you know, I, I tried to find out how much you spend on aging research in the UK, and it's similarly, you know, a derisory amount of money probably uh, pence, as we, we call them over here, per person per year, and you know, a fraction of what we spend on diseases like cancer, which are themselves, I, I believe, underfunded. Um, and actually. On on the other side of the coin, it's it's sort of weird, because although there is this incredibly small amount of funding going into it, there's still, you know, enough to write what I I hope is a sort of information-packed book about it. And there's stuff happening in all the different countries of the world, in lots of really exciting research universities. Um, There is a lot going on in the US. There's an institute called the Buck Institute in California, which is uh, an institute devoted solely to ageing research. A lot of the senescent cell stuff I was talking about earlier is happening in the Mayo Clinic, which is in the States. Um... So, but there's, there's just stuff going on all over the place. I spoke to a telomere researcher in Spain. I spoke to a guy doing some stuff with what's called cellular reprogramming in Switzerland. So I've, I've spoken to people from all over the world, and even I only scratched the surface, you know, in terms of the amount of research that's actually being done. So like I said, it's this weird contradiction. On the one hand, there's so much research, it's actually quite hard to get your head around and keep up with it all. But on the other, the funding is so low, and we really need to massively increase it to try and reap the benefits of this stuff.
0: Wow. Wow. That's incredible. And you really are on the cutting edge of all of this with putting a book out this year after pandemic. I mean, so many people I think are, are really zooming in on, on health and the immune system and everything. So it's almost like the perfect time for this to come out. What was, you know, the reason besides, you know, the future of humanity and and all of our health, why did you want to bring this book to the world at its heart? What do you want the book to do?
1: I think the most important thing I wanted to do is to really convince people that this isn't sci-fi. And although it is a science book, I, you know, the, 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 some of the science, I, I don't mind if you don't come away with every single, you know, detailed, nuanced bit of understanding of how the mitochondria generate energy and how that, you know, impacts on the ageing process. What I really want to do is convince people this is something that's hugely, hugely important, and it's something that's really underfunded. I wrote this to raise the profile of the research. You know, I, I want people to be talking about this, uh, you know, in pubs and bars and at dinner parties when those are all safe to attend again, which hopefully won't be too long. Um, I, want, I want politicians to be talking about this, because ultimately they're the people who hold the purse strings, you know, policymakers, people who set science funding um, and I also want scientists and doctors to be brought on board because one thing I really found um, I, I, I moved from physics to biology as I said earlier and I found that when I started work as a biologist um, it was really shocking to me that often I knew more than my colleagues about aging research which isn't because I'm some kind of genius who you know smashed into the field and, and knew everything already it's because you know i had done a bit of reading about it. And actually, I spoke to you know, for example, I, I met a PhD student who I was working with very closely. He um, got a great degree in biochemistry from a really good university in the UK. hadn't had a single lecture on aging biology, wow. and so it just makes you think, you know, this is one of the most fundamental, universal processes. It's so important, and yet it's got this sort of vicious cycle problem, which is that he, you know, never got a lecture on aging biology, so he's unlikely to be inspired to go and seek out a PhD in it. And that means, you know, he, he did his PhD in cancer research. He's now doing a postdoc, which is then a sort of next step postdoctoral research in cancer research. If he He gets to the stage where he's setting up his own lab where he's a professor himself he's going to do it in cancer research isn't he and what's he going to lecture his undergraduate students about probably cancer And i'm sure he's you know he's a great guy he's gonna be very inspirational he's going to inspire a load more people into cancer research that's a virtuous cycle for cancer research but it's sort of a vicious one for aging research it's very very hard to find the labs to do the working if that's something that you're already passionate about so i want to show biologists that it's important and also doctors so the other example my wife is a doctor and uh, i think when i first started talking to her about this stuff she thought i was a bit crazy but as as she's sort of gone through her first time medical training and now actually working as a doctor and and looking at it with this lens which is a lens that as you sort of alluded to at the start of the podcast isn't a normal way of looking at the world at least it isn't at the moment i hope to change that um you suddenly realize that everyone you're seeing whatever ward you're working on that a lot of them are old a lot of them are taking you know 10 different kinds of medicine to treat you know, first firstly to treat you know, the first five are just to treat the diseases then the second five are to treat the side effects of the medication yeah. you're getting to treat the first diseases and they've all got so many things wrong with them and what you learn about in medical school is you know, the challenges of treating older people, the, the, what's called the polypharmacy, so the number of drugs they're taking, trying to make sure they don't interact, trying to you know help them remember just to take all those drugs, the social problems, sometimes the isolation. There's all kinds of challenges to the sort of geriatric side of treating older people. But what I really think we need to imbue doctors with as well is this knowledge of the gerontological side of treating older people, the bio-gerontological side. Because while there isn't a drug now that my wife can prescribe to her patients to try and slow down their aging, I think it's going to happen within her career. And so I just really wanted to raise the profile across the board. I want everyone to know about this. I want to know how underfunded it is and just how much potential it has to save human lives, to save us money and to massively improve the world. So that's what I really, really hope this book can achieve.
0: I love it. And I think the fact that you totally switched careers and it made you, it put you in a position to where you could look at it from a bird's eye view. You could see, hey, these, this thing is all connected to all of these other things that you're treating and we need to look at this in a bigger way. And so I think that you are probably the perfect person to take this to the stage. And I'm so happy to be joining you in that in a, in a small way. Um, But with everything that you have studied and written, and now that you intuitively know after all of this study and research, what do you want the audience to remember from this talk?
1: I really want them to remember that the ageing process isn't something that's natural and inevitable. And actually, I think the best example for this is something that we've somehow managed not to touch on, even though we started by talking about that graph. I think the thing that's really fundamental to me is that not all animals age this isn't some inevitable law of biology. And I think, you know, when we look around, we age. Everyone we ever know has aged. You know, our, our, our parents have aged, our grandparents have aged, our pets age, our farm animals age. It really does look like a universal process. And then when you look at, um, you know, our machines, I think the cars rust. You know, electronics, you know, eventually stop working or the batteries die or whatever it is. So it just seems like there's this inevitable process of decline. It isn't so much a law of biology, it's just a law of physics that, you know, things tend toward disorder. It's the second law of thermodynamics, as a physicist would put it. But actually, you know, if you look around the animal kingdom, the reason there's a turtle on the front cover of my book, and there's actually a Galapagos tortoise on the UK edition, if you've got that version of the book, um, is because these are animals that seem to defy the ageing process. I said that humans' risk of death doubles about every eight years. A Galapagos tortoise's risk of death is flat, I it stays the same no matter how old it is. And the longest-lived Galapagos tortoise made it to the age of about 175, we think. We don't know exactly when she was born, so it's a bit of an estimate. But the point is that not only did she live to that incredibly ripe old age, she did so effectively without ageing. She wasn't frail, she was you know, still zooming around as fast as a tortoise can zoom, I guess, at the age of 150 <laughs> as she was at the age of 50. And you know she 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 eventually died of a heart attack. So although it's the sort of thing that a human might die of old age, she did it a hundred years later than another human would. So it clearly isn't the case that your risk of death has to rise with age. And it's not just tortoises. You know you can see there are there are salamanders, there are certain kinds of fish. Um, there are actually mammals, naked mole rats. They're these strange little uh, creatures. They look a little bit like a penis with teeth. are quite <laughs> unfortunate looking. They're not the greatest ambassadors for anti-aging. They're these, they're, Let's they're, talk they're, more about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're about the size of a mouse. Um, and yet, you know, mice, I, I already alluded, they, they live two or three years, maybe four at the outside in the lab if you do some modifications to them genetically. But a naked mole rat lives for 30 years. And again, they seem to do so without any increase in frailty. They can still reproduce almost until the end. They carry on scurrying around. They actually live underground in burrows in these these strange colonies, which is, again, unique among mammals. So they're, they're quite weird creatures. But evolutionarily, they're pretty close to us. And they are what's called, all of these creatures are something called negligibly senescent, which is just the scientific word to say, you know, negligibly, not very much, senescent aging. They don't age frankly and what this really shows us is that aging isn't a law of physics it isn't even a law of biology that creatures have to fall apart with time and so that's that's what really excites me about this is that you know we've, we've got living breathing examples that what we're hoping to achieve through medicine is possible through nature and that means that i'm just really excited about this because if it was the case that everything fell apart all you know all creatures aged and died in, this, in a very similar way to us you might just throw your hands up and go well you know we've got a few ideas of what to do with medicine now but basically this is hopeless because we're fighting a losing battle against the you know natural degenerative course of things things in the universe but as it is we've got animals we've got plants we've got all kinds of different things around the animal kingdom that don't age and so that's what just just really invigorates me is that we've got examples of animals that don't age we've got dozens of ways to slow and reverse aging in the lab this i think is the single biggest humanitarian challenge of our time that's what i call it in the book and we've got the scientific tools to rise to that challenge and the evidence from nature that rising to that challenge is something that's possible so i think that combination just makes me as you can probably hear hugely hugely excited about the future
0: yeah, absolutely. And do you think this is something that, you know, the wider population of the world will have access to?
1: I do. And I think that's something that's really, really important, actually, because um, one of the most common questions you get is, you know, won't this only be available to the rich? Are we going to have a cabal of, you know, immortal billionaires, basically, and the rest of us are going to toil on in mortal servitude? And actually, even to take the wider picture, this is this is really, really important for the developing world as well. And the reason I say that is to, you know, wind back to that that global life expectancy number is 726 And as I said, that means most people in most countries are living long enough to age. And actually that means that uh, in the developing world, the ageing process is sort of afflicting their populations even faster than it affected us in the West. So countries like France and uh, the UK had, I I think, between 50 and 100 years to basically adapt to an ageing population. It's this strange statistic I found in a UN population report that for their populations over the age of 65 to double from 7 to 14%. I think France took about 60 years, the UK took 115, I might have got those backwards, but basically you know, we had decades and decades and decades to deal with this problem. And yet if you look at a country like Brazil, which is developing very rapidly, that's gonna happen in less than a quarter of a century. Wow. And if you think about how fast their population's aging versus how fast their GDP, their wealth is growing, then you know, it's just not gonna keep pace. They're not gonna have the standards of cancer care, the standards of, standards of heart disease care that we enjoy in the rich countries by the time their populations are old enough to need them. And so what I think that means is that we really need to develop therapies against aging. And with some of that money that we save in the West by, you know, effectively deferring medical care, by reducing medical costs, we then need to try and make these therapies as accessible as possible to countries all around the world. Because actually, I think they've got potential to have a bigger benefit in the poorer parts of the world than they do in the rich world.
0: Absolutely. Oh, this is so exciting. I could talk to you forever about this. Dr. Andrew Steele, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for your book, Ageless. Where can our audience find out more about you online and get the book?
1: You can get the book at ageless.link. Um, and if you want to find out more about me, I'm on Twitter as at Stato, that's S-T-A-T-T-O. I'm also on Instagram as at Andrew James, uh, sorry, Andrew J. Steele, get my own Instagram handle right. Um, I'm on YouTube as uh, youtube.com forward slash Dr. Andrew Steele, all one word, just Dr. And same on Facebook, Dr Andrew Steele.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you really from the bottom of my heart for all of the work that you're doing in the world. I think it's transformative and very exciting
1: thank you very much for having me and thank you for being so so enthusiastic it's wonderful to see
0: you've been listening to the motherhood unstressed podcast and i'm your host liz carlisle thank you so much for tuning in i hope you enjoyed this episode if you did please share it with a friend and please leave us a review on apple Podcasts. thanks